Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Kathleen Shine is the author of 13 novels, including the internationally best-selling novels The Love Letter, which was made into a movie starring Kate Capshaw, and Ramau's Niece, which also was made into a movie starring Parker Posey. It was called The Misadventures of Margaret. She's been on the show with me twice before, in 2011 for The Three Weissmans of Westport, and again in 2019 for The Grammarians. You can find both those interviews in our archives. Kathleen's latest is Kunstler's In Paradise. There were allusions to this book during our November 2019 chat when we were four months away from the long pause. So it's interesting to see how that project evolved into what it became today. So we'll chat about it along with incorporating the pandemic into fiction, point of view, rendering characters who look biographically very different from you, managing time and eras in a novel, the importance of place, writing dialects. We're going to talk about it all so much more. Before I bring her on, it's your weekly friendly reminder to visit our Patreon page. After over two decades, 25 years, and over a thousand episodes, and after leaving the radio station, we started the page to get more hands-on and in direct contact with you. So hopefully this show has boosted your writing in some way giving you some useful writing advice, uh, giving you the behind the scenes tour of how these books get made. If you've enjoyed it, look for us there. You get a few perks for your membership. You can see all those benefits by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us out and we appreciate it all. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or some of the other podcast platforms. That also helps us out immeasurably. We appreciate you. On with the show. Kathleen Shine, welcome back. Well, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And I love that you refer to that time as the long pause, because that's certainly what it was. Isn't that how it felt? Yeah. I mean, I've really been enjoying these interviews with authors I last spoke to right before the shutdown. And I've had wow. a few others because I feel like, I, I don't know, maybe book publication must be on a four-year track. So I'm getting to listen to these conversations that we had like right before the world changed and then talk to them about how that time, you know, sort of impacted their creativity and read the fiction that's emerged out of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm happy to hear you spent your pandemic days way more productively than I did. So congratulations on that. Well, I, I spent most of my pandemic days with my mouth hanging open, you know, staring dully at the sky. But uh but eventually I got it, I got it together. So. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about that and kind of, yeah, how that all went. Cause this novel was in progress already and then that happened. And then I can, you know, we'll talk about how it shaped this novel. It obviously did, but yeah, just tell me a little bit about that. Did you just kind of stop writing for a while and then. Yes, exactly. I, I was, I had wanted to write about this group of emigres in and had started to write about them in um, who came to LA during the thirties and thirties and early forties, people who were fleeing Europe, fleeing Hitler, most of them Jews who ended up in Los Angeles and formed this kind of clan of people. They were called the colony. They all spoke German. They didn't call themselves immigrants, although obviously that's what they were, but they were they were an elite group of people. There were conductors and composers and famous directors and musicians and writers. And uh, they formed a, a, a group of friends who met frequently together. They drank their strong coffee and ate their chocolate cake and argued and gossiped and you know, undermined each other and supported each other, but it was a very, very close knit group with lots of feuds and it was fascinating. And I just thought I want to write about these people. I'm kind of new to LA myself. And I, as a, as a um, New Yorker, I always thought, well, 
you know, there's no culture in Los Angeles. And I discovered that was uh, a parochial view, shall we say. <laughs> and so I was very, very interested in, in this group of people. So I started writing this, but I wasn't sure how to do it. I didn't want to write a historical novel for various reasons, including I don't like most historical novels. I feel like I'd rather read something written in the period than about the period. If I read about the period, I'd rather read nonfiction. So I was really stumped. And then, um, but I was, you know, I was writing the characters and feeling my way. And then the, the pandemic happened and the lockdown happened and I just froze. And I thought, well, that's it. You know, who would want to read a book? Who would want to write a book about anything right now? And obviously the world is ending and I'll never write another book and I'll never read another book. I just was just as were many people, I think, just completely paralyzed. And at the same time, I was in Los Angeles and I was sitting in my lovely garden smelling the jasmine. And it was just unbelievably beautiful. And the lockdown in LA was characterized by quiet uh, because all the traffic was gone, all the helicopters were gone. And it was just beautifully quiet. You could hear all the birds. It was lovely. Meanwhile, my family and friends were in New York. And whenever I called my mother or my brother or friends, all I could hear was sirens in the background. And it was, you know, very, very difficult time there, like the worst of the pandemic. And that also was, for me, of, of you know, just it was terrifying. And it was, again, a kind of paralyzing moment in terms of art. It's like, who cares about art? Who cares about my, you know, my scribblings? Who cares? And it was just so sad. And I was so miserable. And at the same time, I was really enjoying smelling the lavender and being, you know, and relaxing in the beautiful garden and the sky was blue. And I felt terribly guilty. And at one point, I just made this connection because I had been reading so many memoirs of emigres coming to Los Angeles who basically would, you know, be overcome with guilt while walking under the beautiful palm trees. And it was a, a thread that ran through all of these memoirs. And I realized then that there was a kind of bridge between all proportions kept, of course, between what I was feeling and what all of, you know, what, uh, I don't know, Bertolt Brecht was feeling, um, mm -hmm. or Thomas Mann, or uh, Salka Firdal, or all of these people I'd been reading about. And that's when I thought of having Julian this grandson, this sort of feckless young man from New York coming to, to stay with his grandmother in, in Venice uh, in 2020 and getting caught in the, in the lockdown with his 93-year-old grandmother and her helper in a little bungalow. And uh, as, as one, of my, one of my friends said, um, horror? or comedy. <laughs> and, you know, it just was a very appealing, as a writer, it was a very appealing setup. And then the books, then I started writing, I mean, by hand, because somehow that protected me from, you know, thinking that I was really writing. So I just wrote, you know, in a notebook. And, and then the thing, then, then it came together, and, and the whole thing made sense. And I knew how to approach Mamie, the 93-year-old grandmother, when she came to LA as an emigre with her mother and father and grandfather in 1939. And the whole thing kind of uh, made sense to me then and had some purpose other than my own curiosity about this uh, emigre community. Well, and the reverberations kept coming because it wasn't just the pandemic, but then it was the Black Lives Matter movement and it's, you know, this backlash against Jews. Like all of these things in the last 
four years have really been echoes in history that are, yeah, really lovely echoes across these two eras. And I especially appreciate these relationships between grandson and grandparent. You don't read that very often. I sort of had this image of like Harold and Maude meets um, <laughs> Little Miss Sunshine or something. <laughs> That's great. I mean, it wasn't um, sexual, obviously, but it was. Uh, no, God, no. But um, but yeah, there is sort of that. I, I love the uh, I love grandparent and um, grandchild relationships. First of all, I loved my grandparents and was very close to them and found them, you know, particularly my I was I knew my mother's parents much better. And um, I learned so much from them and they were so funny and it just gave me a different perspective on on everything and also i find it's a it's a really interesting relationship because um especially when you're writing but even in life you can see your grandparents in a way that you cannot see your parents your parents are too you're too embedded literally in the beginning and then <laughs> figuratively figuratively as you uh, are born and go on, you're embedded in your parents and in their world. And your grandparents have that, you know, one, one step back and you can see them as people without having to rebel against them or separate from them or cling to them. And um, so I, I find that although it's a, you know, it can be this very, very close, intimate family relationship, it also has some of the qualities of friendship and sh and you share things in a different way. So that was something I was really happy. I love that relationship and and I you know as I kept writing the the parents became also became more interesting to me because they were reflected from you know from both um Julian and Mamie and I could see them sort of refracted in 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 different ways. And so that was also an interesting thing to be able to have these different angles on uh, Julian's parents. So yeah, it's a wonderful relationship to explore and to experience, I think, for me. Well, and it really showcased the eras in which all of these generations were coming of age, because the the parents who would sort of be my age are kind of born in this lovely time in our country's history, you know, a fairly quiet time. And it came out with who they who they are. I was like, oh my God, I, I really sound like that. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> and and the other two generations, I mean, there really are a lot of parallels in terms of, you know, having to come of age during the Trump years and, you know, being born under the shadow of 9-11 and the, all the, the things that this generation coming up, this Gen Z generation has, has had to endure, look yeah. a lot more like what their grandparents had to endure. Yeah. I mean, it's true. The the rise of anti-Semitism, which when I was growing up, it was something that was so, you know, outré, uh, just just yeah. socially. I mean, because of, you know, we were so close to to the Nazis and, and the Holocaust that I'm sure there was I know there was plenty of anti-Semitism, but people kept it to themselves. And um, so I didn't experience a lot of that. I, it was historical, really, in our minds. And uh, that's all different now. And, you know, just living with upheaval and uncertainty. I mean, I, you know, we had the Vietnam War, but it was so clear to us. Everything was so obvious, uh, you know, like this is wrong and uh, we will protest and we will be hippies. And that's OK, because our parents will support us because there's plenty of, of money and there are plenty of jobs that you can always get if you need to. So it was, yeah, it was a very, very different time. And I think that young people and older, really older people like Mamie do share certain a certain amount of a different kind of vulnerability. Yes. I think we've done a good job of introducing it, but but I guess we should just round it out by saying so so Julian, this this young man comes to LA to live with his grandmother. They are now locked down together in the in the pandemic, and she starts talking. She starts telling him all of her all of her stories. 
it's just so <laughs> just so we've laid the groundwork so people know. Yeah. What we're about. <laughs> right. That's always the hardest part for me in any Anytime I talk about any of my books, it's like, what is your book about? What's it about? Yeah. And it's about so much. I mean, you know, as the book unfolded, there's so much in here about music and about tennis and literature and that that whole, uh, <laughs> it became about a lot of wonderful things. And you managed to retain, we talk about this every interview you and I have together, we talk about your sense of humor. And uh, when I picked this up, I was like, I wonder if she's going to be able to retain her sense of humor through this. And and yes, you did. I, I wondered about that myself. And I also wondered if having a sense of humor about this was really almost obscene, but it's not. It's it's necessary. And, and or, or certainly it's the way I end up manipulating and not manipulate, maneuvering my way through my life. And so it's also the way I end up maneuvering my way through my novels. It's just another way of looking at things that uh, that is my way. And I can't help it, honestly. I, I, yeah, I was going to say, it's, it seems so woven into the DNA of your voice. <laughs> how could you, yeah, how could you separate from it? And I do think that gallows humor, whatever, however you would characterize it, is it's so important. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of the the antidote to everything we were going through. Well, I wasn't sure I had it in me uh, anymore. I was so depressed and so sort of beaten down by, you know, by all the Trump years. And I just didn't know if I, if it was a worthy pursuit to write or, or if it was just too irrelevant to the world and, and so, and unnecessary. And then I thought, well, not everything has to be necessary. And it was necessary for me ultimately to, to keep writing, but I was, I was pretty, I was pretty down until I, you know, really figured out, yes, I'm going to do this and it may have no impact on anybody else. But for me, I'm, it's a way for me to understand what's going on right now. Yeah. Is this, I can't remember how much you've written about LA in the past, but I think it's very interesting to write about a place as both an insider and an outsider, which is kind of how you felt like you were doing this. I mean, you're essentially, you know, lived on the East coast for a very long time, wrote a lot of books set there. And then that, I feel like that gives you kind of a unique insight on the, the pathos and pleasures of LA. No, well, you know, this was one, that was one of the things when I first started before the pandemic and everything. I thought, oh, this is a wonderful way for me to explore Los Angeles because although I have lived here over ten years, I mean, I was commuting a lot back to New York and I was visiting my mother every month, and so uh, you know, I had one, I had a foot on each pony galloping along. But I'm not a very adventurous person geographically. I not quite agoraphobic, but I'm a bit of a hermit. So I hadn't, you know, and, and LA is, is daunting. There's so much traffic and, you know, and I, it took me so long to figure out, you know, the, the, the ocean's on the wrong side and the <laughs> valley isn't where it was supposed to. I always thought the valley was, was east, but it's north. I mean, it took me years to figure these things out because I'm sort of adult about stuff like that. So I didn't feel comfortable in LA for a long time, except in my own little neighborhood, which I love and know intimately because I walk and walk the dog. But I thought, oh, this is a wonderful time to really get to know LA and I'll visit all these houses of, uh, I'll go to Thomas Mann's house and I'll, I'll see where Schoenberg lived and, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll see where Brecht lived and Adorno and, you know, and all these people and Greta Garbo and then when we got really locked down, I, I said to myself, oh, phew, I don't have to do this. <laughs> um, I can stay home and I can, you know, read, and, which is uh, uh, my preferred way of doing research. Um, I'm just, yeah. But anyway, it was, but then on a sort of mi- microcosmic level, I did do all of that kind of physical geographical research because I, the only thing I did during all those months was walk the dog. 
and often at night. So I got to, you know, sort of know where the stars were each night. And, you know, it became a much more intimate exploration of a place. And it's very hard for me. You know, I, I, I write about where I am or about place. And it's very hard to write for me to write about a new place. I mean, I wrote about where I grew up in Connecticut for a long time while I was living in New York. And then finally, New York became home. And I lived there for almost 40 years. And I wrote about New York. And so here, moving here, I, I, I wasn't sure when I would be able to really write about Los Angeles. And it turns out I didn't really write about Los Angeles. I really wrote about the west side of Los Angeles because that's where I started to feel comfortable, friendly. I understood the light finally. I, I understood the, the different when, when spring happened. You know, it became a comfortable place that I, not comfortable meaning, oh, I can lie back in my chair comfortable, but observationally comfortable where I, I knew where I was and I could really look at things rather than scrambling to, you know, sort of get used to uh, why is the sky so peculiar today? And so once that happened, and I was forced by the lockdown to really be in this small area, I really was able to write about, write about where I live, which was very exciting for me. I always said LA was be a nice city if all the people would leave it. And you kind of got that during the pandemic, right? You got to be with the city without the, without well, the people. Know, you know, uh, it's funny, the sort of the opposite happened to me because on our, in our little neighborhood, everyone was home. So everyone was sitting outside. And so you finally met your neighbors. Mm. We live really, these houses in Venice are really cheap by jowl. So I had heard my neighbors, but I really didn't know them. But now, you know, you, and everybody got a dog. So yes. the dog walking became the kind of social interaction. And it turns out there are actually wonderful people here, which I should have known, except, you know, one has one's prejudices, not only about Los Angeles, but about the human race in general. And um, so especially and now <laughs> that part was, was actually wonderful. And I, you know, we made a lot of really close friends, not a lot, but enough so that now it's just a neighborhood. It's, it's really home now. And that, and it, and it has, a, it, it gave it more of a feel of New York in a way, because everyone, no one had anywhere to go. So everyone was home and then, but walking and on the street, which is one of the good things about Venice anyway, that people do walk. So yeah, I, I love I, that. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was, a, that was a revelation that there were like really nice people living right next door. I feel like Venice, we live on a walk street, you know, there are no cars on our street. You there's an alley in back where the cars go. And um, it's kind of left over from the time when Venice was a, a pleasure town, a, a uh, you know, Venice of America, sort of like Coney Island, but meant to be like an upscale kind of Coney Island. So it, it's a, a walk street. And I often think of it as a sort of a apartment building that's been tipped on its side because <laughs> so close to everybody as we were in New York, you can hear arguments, you can hear people practicing the piano, that kind of thing. And then often the, you know, the children for a long period, there were little children living around here and they were just always running up and down the walk street. And it was very much like when my children grew up in an apartment building in New York, they were always running up and down the stairs with their friends or taking the elevator together so it felt, you know, in that way, it felt very much um, very reminiscent of what had been home for so long. Yeah, I love that. So let's talk a little bit about, I love the point of view in here because you get into a lot of characters' heads. It's both like a close third and, and an omniscient at the same time. And I loved how you played with that and it worked and I never got lost. And it felt a little bit rule breaky because, you know, we're in Julian's head, but then we also get to uh, dive into Mammy's point of view. I yeah, read a lot of 19th century novels where 
that's the norm. So, uh, you know, to me, that seems, that seems uh, the, that gives me the most freedom, I think. But, you know, in terms of the point of view, that was actually very difficult in, in the beginning. Uh, you know, I start, as I often do, I started this book in the first person with Mamie, and then I went to the third person. And then I went back to the first person because very oddly, it gave me some distance on her, me, the author, so that I wasn't always in her head. She was in her head and it allowed her to speak, which was a very odd sensation because usually, you know, you use the third person to have a little, little bit of distance. So that was interesting, but yeah, I wanted her to be the narrator of her stories, which she is, but I also didn't want, you know, all of the information about her to come from her. So that, you know, so sometimes it's, there's a, a little bit in the beginning, it's, it's more third person. I, I just went back and forth and back and forth until I found what I wanted, what, what worked for her, what made her come alive for me. And then there was, you know, the issue of these famous people that I've put in there, like <laughs> yes. or Greta Garbo. And there was no way I would presume to write from the point of view of either Schoenberg or Greta Garbo. That's just not how I see them or do them. And, and so it, you know, having Mamie be the one who perceives them really made that work for me. Cause I was very reluctant at first, you know, thinking, how am I going to write about these, you know, these famous people without it becoming a, some kind of, you know, silly uh, historical novel, you know, and so, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I just wasn't up to or interested in, you know, writing from Arnold Schoenberg's point of view. I was fascinated by him. I was, I became obsessed with him and not just his music, but him as a person. And uh, luckily there's a lot written about him and, you know, and he was involved in various, uh, feuds which I could read about so that was that was really fun that was that was fascinating yeah the research on this sounded like it would be incredibly fun I have to admit I knew nothing about I lived in LA now I live in in Orange County but I lived in LA I don't know for 12 years or something no idea about any I I kind of agreed with you that I thought LA was sort of a you know not, not, it's certainly not a cultural wasteland, but you know, it is a high kind cultural of, wasteland. Yes, I reserved the intellectuals for the East Coast, and right. um, so this was a total revelation to me. I had, I had no idea about this. Uh, I, I kind of was picturing it like the was it the Virginia Wolf circle of yeah, yeah, that she had. Yeah, that's yeah, how it, that's how I was picturing it. Well, there was a woman named Salka Fertile who wrote absolutely the most wonderful memoir called The Kindness of Strangers. And she would have these salons. She was an actress and they, she and her husband, who was a writer, came here in, in, in the, earlier in the thirties. And she had every Sunday, she would have people, you know, she had an open house and it was just the most amazing group of people. I mean, there were, you know, there'd be Johnny Weissmuller but there'd be, you know, Stravinsky, uh, you know, it just went on and on. And people, she, you know, and she did this wonderful thing for this community of people in bringing them together where they could all speak German if they wanted to and argue with each other. And, you know, make, she got, people got jobs, their whole careers there by being there with for networking, other people just came for the comfort of listening to to uh, to German. Thomas Mann was obsessed with her chocolate cake and would come, and you know, so it it was so interesting. And I knew nothing about it either. I was uh, reviewing a, a biography of Alma Mahler, Gustav Mahler's wife, and many other people's wife. And Alma Mahler ended up here and for quite a while, and I started seeing all the all these emigres who were here and what was going on. And that I just, be, I just thought, wow, you know, I have been so ignorant about the place that I now live in. So yeah, it was fascinating. 
We'll be back with more from Kathleen Shine and Kunstlers in Paradise in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you like the show, you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication. You like these little behind the scenes discussions of how these books get made. This is your chance to support the show. Any amount helps us out. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Kathleen Shine talking about Kunstlers in Paradise. Tell me a little bit about, without giving anything away, about writing real life characters and how much sort of latitude you feel like you can take fictionally with them. Or do you feel like everything has to be based on research and then you can jump off with, I'm trying not to give anything away, but. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, at first I was pretty terrified and I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll just use passages of things that they've said in letters or in, you know, I'll just use their own words, uh, you know, which I, which I tried to do. And, and um, you cannot imagine a more stilted and bizarre creation than what, what came out of their mouths. And then I just realized what I needed to do was read a tremendous amount of thing of memoirs of um of biographies of of letters just to hear not only my real characters like Garbo or or Schoenberg uh, my historically real characters to hear them speak or write but to hear how other people at that time spoke and wrote because that's you know the kind of writing I do, I listen a lot, and a lot of it. That's why I've always been nervous about writing a, anything having to do with with a, a, a time before my own. That I would get the language wrong, and that I would, and therefore, getting the language wrong is getting is getting the whole thing wrong for me. But at the same time, you can't use the slang of the time, you know, in the same way, because then it it just sounds very, very false. I mean, I found that out writing Finn and Lady, which was about the 60s when I was, you know, I was alive and and kicking. You just can't use 60s slang. It just sounds so false because nobody, you can't believe that anybody really said groovy. So, um, (laughs) so I really had to immerse myself in you know, in a kind of general point of view of seeing the world, talking about the world, talking about the world they'd left, which was, you know, Austria and Germany, which was being destroyed, and talking about the new world. And once I did that, I started to feel more comfortable in allowing them to speak, (laughs) you know, open their mouths in a limited way. But, you know, most of the observations and things come from Mamie rather than, you know, as I say, I, I wasn't in Schoenberg's head. There's no close third person of Greta Garbo. Um, it's they are observed and heard from from Mamie's point of view. But uh, they were finally able to uh, to speak. Took a long time and to behave, to have certain, you know, to live, basically. But that took a lot of, for me, it was a kind of courage to do it because it didn't come easily because I, I uh, you know, my writing is very much centered on words rather than, say, structure. So it was, uh, and dialogue. And so it was, it was difficult, but it was very, very rewarding and interesting and fun. And you just kind of inhabit people and an era in a way I wasn't sure I'd be able to do. Yes. Well, to that point, you had a lot of heavy lifting tasks to manage dialogue across generations and across geography, because you've got, so you've got these immigrants from Vienna, so they have their own dialect. And, you know, as they're trying to learn English, they have that. There's mm-hmm. a side side character, Agatha, who now lives with Mamie and her older years, who I presume is Hispanic. You have, is that right? I'm not sure about okay. that. I left okay. that open. I, I think she might be from Eastern Europe. Okay. Uh, or she might be from Portugal, or she might be from Brazil. I, you know, I went 
I, I had a lot of, and, and, and that's something, you know, usually I try when I'm writing, you know, sort of, I don't know, this is, maybe this is a derogatory term. I don't mean it that way, but pigeon English, when I write English that has been absorbed into um, the speaker's own language and comes out in an interesting new way, um, I usually try to know the grammar behind it. But this time it was just idiosyncratic and it's just Agatha. So I am (laughs) not, I did not really want to know exactly where she was from. She was just Agatha from the beach. They met on the beach. She's Agatha from the beach. So we can agree English was not her first language. English was, (laughs) nor was it really her next language. Her next language. Right, right. She speaks Agatha ease. Yes. And I mean, having a 21-year-old daughter who's not that far off from Julian, they also have their own language. They have their own. So you had to manage all of these generational, geographic, dialects, dialogues, as people are learning, playing with English back then. Now, Mamie obviously has a fantastic command of the English language now. So that that is tough. And I was wondering if there are things you could say about, yes, doing all of those dialect and dialogue things, because it, it was kind of making my head spin how you managed to do it all. Oh, well, thank you. I like to make heads spin for <laughs> any reason at all. But that's a extremely uh, gratifying one. I think I I really tried to allow each character to develop their own way of speaking. And that sometimes included, you know, certain phrases or slang. I mean, with Mamie, I had been reading so, so much from that period, from her youthful period, that I was able to I hope, you know, give her some language that that made sense, let her speak in a way that that really illuminated her world and her worldview. And with Julian, uh, you know, sometimes I would there were a couple of times when I think I may have checked with a with a nephew, you know. Right. But I, I do I did worry about that because that changes so much. But at a certain point, you you, you know, I have to tell myself. You cannot write contemporary slang. Just forget it because it won't be contemporary and it won't mean anything in five minutes. So people have to speak in a way and think in a way and observe in a way that is common to all of us. At the same time, it has to um, reflect what, you know, who they are, what age they are. And uh, so that was, that was um, interesting. It was challenging, but but interesting, there was more difficulty with um, with Julian, I think, than with the others. But I I just figured he's a you know he's a, he's a person and and he you know and 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 then they they just take on their own way of of thinking eventually and talking mm-hmm. and um, you just try to call out the anomalies. Um, it's one of the things I can't stand about um, some historical fiction and especially like television stuff, you know, set in the past when, oh God, you know, when they just yes. use contemporary phrases, it, it, it drives me, it drives me crazy. But on the other hand, you don't want people, um, here's the thing, embrace it and talk about it in the novel, which I think I, I did. There were a number of places where Julian and his grandmother discuss slang and the way words they use are different. That I think for me, usually when there's a problem, when I'm banging my head against the wall about something, I then just use it, the bang, the head banging, the problematic aspect of it, I incorporate into the book. And that's, I did do that a number of times. And I think that that, that worked. Mm, that's brilliant. I've never heard that advice. That's really brilliant. Yes. Just address it head on. That's happened to me so many times, not just with language, but anything racial or, you know, just use of, of certain words. And I thought, oh, but Mamie would say, you know, would say this, but then Julian would object. And then I thought, well, have Mamie say this and have Julian object, and then they can talk about it. So that, that made it really more interesting for me. And I think more um, authentic also, I hope. Yes. Yes. Richer. Right. Right. 
Yeah, one of the um, problems that I think a lot of the generations have between each other is that, you know, the and the parents certainly did this way more than than Mamie did it. But, you know, they just say something so out of touch with yeah. what's going on. And uh, yeah, the parents were constantly guilty of that. So that, you know, yes. that was fun. And Julian is such his own unique, quirky little man, right? So he's, yes. <laughs> regardless of what, you know, I mean, he, he wouldn't necessarily, you know, be the typical Gen Z guy because he just wasn't, you know, I mean, that was... Yes, and no, he was busy studying uh, alphabets. And yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, he's an oddball, which, which uh, the more I got to know him, the more interesting he needed to become and the more interesting he did become because you know you can't I mean at first he was just sort of this you know hapless sad sack going through this book and uh, and that and I realized that really isn't who he is he has his issues and he is hapless but you know he has a real inner life and and ambitions as as uh, short-lived as they may be (laughs) Well, and he he was a great vehicle. I know how much you love language from reading all of your books. And he's he was a great vehicle for you to be able to play with language and play with words and all those things that I know you must love as a person. Of course, I've never met you, but, you know, yeah, from what no. I know of your work, I, I yeah. suspect that is true. So, yeah, he and seemed so in- like he became a, a good vehicle for that. Yeah, he was he that was one of the things he loved to do. And then that was, you know, when Mamie tells him all these stories from her past, not all the stories, some stories she kept secret, but the many stories that she did tell in a, you know, partly to just, you know, kill time, but also to kind of to try to give to him some kind of legacy and help him understand and have some perspective on his own life and understand what all the things that went into creating Julian Kunstler when she, you know, he listens, which I think is one of the really important things I tried to get across in the book that it's not just storytelling, but, but story listening. And um, that, that is so important that it's a a two-way arrangement. And he listens and then he begins telling the stories and his way of telling stories is, you know, different from hers, even though, even though he's quoting her and that that's how stories get transmitted in families and then they change. And um, so that, that also, I, I found his ability and desire to do that interesting and important. Okay, that's another huge challenge that you had to overcome because you have different eras. You have present day, you have the stories Mamie's telling from the 1930s. Then you have Mamie telling them to Julian and Julian telling them to this this lovely young woman that he's met. And so you have to do this, you know, quotes inside of quotes thing to communicate that Julian is retelling the story from Mamie. Yes. And I was like, man, she's she's managing you know, kind of points of view and time periods. And I never got lost. And I was like, this is, this is oh. the mark of a woman who's written 13 novels. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad you didn't get lost. You know, the, the real challenge with that was where, to, which quote marks do you, what, what quotation marks do you use? Where yes, yes. You use italics? How do you, you know, it was all sort of just about the graphics of it, but um, in terms of, of, uh, you know, him telling stories, I, I felt that they were, I hoped that they were separate enough. And, and sometimes, you know, he would tell her stories, he tells her stories in the first person, which I really enjoyed doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was, you know, for me, it was a kind of um, not a puzzle, because uh, God knows, I am the worst at puzzles and word puzzles and crossword puzzles. I'm just hopeless unfortunately, because I gather they're a lot of fun, but Wordle is not for me. That's but, surprising, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I know. People always think, oh, you must be so good at these things. Oh, I'm terrible. It's just having no memory, basically. But but it was a kind of um, playful 
meaningful challenge for me to to do all of that. And you know, I'm I'm I enjoy that so much more than thinking, well, what's the plot? Yes, yes. (laughs) Because it's like having a lot of mini plots, having having all those things. They're structural plots and they fascinate me and 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 uh, I love I loved doing that. Once I figured out that was a thing I could do, um it was it was quite fun and exciting. All that work on the grammarians paid off on this one, right? (laughs) We had to figure out grammar punctuation. Yes. Well, I I both listened to it and read it. So I read the 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 audio is good, right? The audio is amazing. I mean, that woman and her command of all these different voices, right, was really impressive. I mean, I yeah, I was sent you know a, a, a sample of various people reading, and I usually can't stand hearing my books read by the readers. And then I listened to that one, and I thought, oh I, wow, I would listen to this. Yeah, she's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, there really were some dialects, dialogues, whatever. I thought this is going to get confusing, and yeah, she really she had it nailed. And I thought, I mean, to the point about all of the weird quotation marks, interior quotation marks, all of that. I thought I'm going to get lost when I start listening. But no, I mean, the way she read it, you really did not get, you know, she had such distinctive voices for each character. So you you did. Yeah, yeah. I'm good. I'm glad. I'm glad you felt that way. Yeah, that was that was impressive. Just to close out the research question, because there would have been so much and you said there was a lot, you know, on Schoenberg and certainly Greta Garbo and and some of these other real life characters, as well as, you know, the ship they came over on and whatever must have happened to them in Vienna. When do you yeah. when do you feel like, you know, you've done enough and, you know, when it's when you're on safe ground to jump into your own fictive world with with research? Sort of never like I'm still reading some of that stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got very, very, I got very deep into that world. And it's very hard for me to leave these, uh, these Germans behind and, um, and Austrians. And, you know, so there were books that I just didn't get to that I meant to, but, you know, at a certain point, you just, you just are, I, you know, the, the characters also are demanding some attention and eventually, you know, one gets to the end of the book and there's still, you know, this pile of things that I, you know, wanted to finish that I never did, but I realized the book was finished with my research. Maybe I wasn't. So I'm having trouble transitioning to uh, writing something else because I still have this tall pile of of books from that period that, you know, I still want to read. So it's been, it's been interesting. Has that been the case for for any of the other books? Does one beget the next? And do you have you ever found that you know the research for one sort of spurs you into the the next one, or are they completely separate from each other? No, they're pretty separate. I mean, I've written the first time I really used research rather than writing. You know, my first two novels were pretty autobiographical, and when I started Ramo's niece which is a lot of it is about the enlightenment and, and the philosophes and has a, a faux philosophical dialogue in it that I wrote, but all stealing everything. I mean, stealing, using everything from various philosophers of the, of the period. It was so liberating not to be writing about my own family and myself. And I did a lot of research, but when it was done, it was done. And the same thing, I wrote a book with a lot of stuff about Darwin, which changed my worldview completely, turned me into a very um, depressed <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. atheist. Yeah, but then that was done. And and not only that, I mean, the thing for me is, I you know, I love doing research. I love that kind of information. I love making connections, but I cannot retain anything, which is why I could not be a medieval historian or any kind of historian. I can't keep anything in my head. It's like a sieve. And um, so I get very deep into things and have wonderful insights. And, you know, when the book is done, uh, they're all gone. So that's refreshing. I'm the same way. That's so refreshing to hear. Good. It's yeah. (laughs) It's uh, I sometimes I think if I really could remember even half of everything I've known and thought and 
you know, made connections, I would be so smart. But, um, <laughs> you know, this way I'm fresh and open to new things. So, yeah, someone said to me, why don't you write, keep writing about these characters or this period if, you know, you can't get out of it? And I, I don't think it's that. I don't think there's another book about these people in me, although there might be. It's just that I'm not done understanding this very, very difficult period in our history and the, you know, and the people who wrote about it. I'm just, I'm just not finished with the, you know, the literature is so rich. So I have a lot of Thomas Mann books, you know, to go through. I have Heinrich Mann. Yeah, I have a lot. Well, I think this this period in our own history that we're living through now begets, for me at least, studying history because I'm like, how the f- did we, <laughs> how did we here? get here? Right. Yes, how do we get here? And how so, do we get uh, and how do we get out? Yeah, no. So I, I can I can totally see that. So when you're organizing this material, because if your brain works like mine, you can't remember anything for five minutes. Kind of what does your office look like? How do you how do you keep all of this material straight so that you can use it fictively and not lose it, which is usually what I would do? Well, I do all my research on the computer. I have newspaper clippings on the computer. I have all different files. Then they all get saved by a different app and I don't know where they are. And then I have to search for them. <laughs> and then I finally find things. And then I take notes with my pen in a notebook. And, and then constantly I have to, uh, because, you know, every time you move a chapter, you're changing a time frame, And so I have to keep track of that. And then, you know, I, I changed the, the ages of, of people, you know, how old she was when she got here. And I was constantly writing down dates and the ages of people and real people like Greta Garbo, because I didn't want Greta Garbo to be, you know, Six, I didn't want her to be 24 in 1945, which was, you know, so it's constant thing because I can't keep anything straight. And I make lists and I sometimes draw cartoons, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, like uh, sometimes to get through a place where certain things have to happen in a certain order. I, I draw um, a kind of comic strip uh, line and, you know, make stick figures showing things just so I can get it straight in my head. I, I do anything I need to do, basically. So yes. my desk usually looks, you know, has piles of papers and books and stickies. I had a lot of stickies. There were stickies on top of stickies on top of stickies reminding me of things. Um, and then, you know, with any luck, at the end, I haven't made too many terrible errors. I have in the past, <laughs> in an early book, I've had someone be pregnant for 11 months. I, I, I caught it, but it was there. You know, it, it's you yeah. Gotta, so, yeah. Yeah. Timelines, man. And especially in a book like this, there were a lot of timelines. So yeah, yeah, there were there were different timelines. They intersected. They didn't intersect. Um, I had to know how old you know Schoenberg was and how old his children were and which dog he had at what time and you know all that kind of stuff, which I love and it it creates a whole picture for me, the, uh, you know, a whole world that I'm very excited about. I just have to make sure not to let one thing bleed into the other and and thereby diminish what I'm doing. So I'm very just disorganized, but I double check myself, you know, constantly and, and hope for the best. Yes. There weren't a lot of, I don't know if the word is politics. There weren't a lot of politics in here, but there were, there were some. And I always think it's great if an author has a platform to use it, but I also think it's not great to, you know, use fiction to yell at people. And I thought this elegantly did both those things. <laughs> I thought, you know, you were able to communicate some ideas about our current world without being preachy or didactic or whatever you want to call it. And I, I was wondering about your thoughts on that and incorporating either maybe your own political ideas or thoughts commentating on the world without, you know, bleeding into that kind of, you know, I'm going to tell you what I think mode. Yeah. I mean, it was a challenge not to do it. I thought 
maybe, you know, once in a while, I think, why, you know, be careful, you know, you don't want to be writing a treatise here. But it was impossible not to. I mean, that is the world. And that is the world I was living in at that moment. And that is Julian's world. And that was Mamie's world. And so in this book in particular, there was just no way not to do that. But one of the things I found interesting when I was writing about Mamie is thinking about what it's like to be, say, a teenager or a child when, you know, momentous world events are happening. And the truth is you barely notice them. And, or at least I barely noticed them for a long time. And, you know, I was, I, we had a peace vigil in my town that we'd go to when I was in high school, you know, and stand in front of the town hall. We weren't allowed to chew gum, which I thought was really very oppressive. But mostly, you know, for me, and I th- especially for me, because I'm, you know, half out of it all the time, but I found it interesting how you don't, what you don't notice as things are going on. And so for Mamie, that was something she could look back on and think about. And that was one way of addressing certain issues. You know, and for Julian, he's also kind of, his head is in the, in the clouds, but he's, existing in this particular world that we had. And, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement happened during that period. And there was no way not to be, not to notice it. I mean, in Venice, you know, I, I, I couldn't go out and, and, uh, you know, join in these, um, in these demonstrations. I'm, I'm too old. And, you know, and I, I didn't, I really didn't feel um, like, getting COVID was a good idea for me, but you could hear them all the time. You could hear people chanting and, you know, at the church nearby and, um, and it was very moving and it was very important. And so it had to be there. It was just like the, you know, like the sky, it was there. It is the world that they're living through. And uh, so I thought that was important. And also there's certain echoes from Mamie's time and, and there's a certain, dialogue between the two periods that was going on in the book, as well as the dialogue between Mamie and Julian. So there was just no way to avoid it. But yeah, I I certainly didn't want it to be a a preachy book on the other hand. And I occasionally will get a letter because I I usually make some disparaging comment about Republicans or something. And I've, I've gotten like, you know, emails saying, you know, you should keep politics out of your books. And it's like, politics is life. So good luck. Well, especially that. now there's not, there's not a subject yeah. you can talk about without it being political now. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Good luck writing a book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, this is great. Is there writing advice that we didn't cover that we should have covered? I love your advice about if there's an issue in the book, address it head on. I, I think that's new advice that I, I haven't heard that often and I think is is wonderful but if there's other stuff that you think we should mention yeah well I guess the only thing that I that I found true throughout all of my writing all these books I mean I I um in the past never had writer's block until you know basically the Trump years but it even so I've always known from the first book I wrote do not try to make art, certainly on the first draft, just try to get down what you need to get down and then go back and then make it good. And um, that has, that has served me well. What I realized the other day, because my son is turning 40 and my first book came out right when he was born. That is what I've learned in 40 <laughs> years of writing of writing novels. So, yeah. Great advice. Yeah. Yeah. And this idea of writing everything by hand, I assume you were writing in a, I'm just going to guess you were writing in a Moleskine because Moleskines were playing a little bit of a role in this book. But um. Um, no, I, I find them, I, I like to write with uh, in the, the sort of, uh, what's it called? The not regular lines, but, you know, graph paper kind of notebooks. And I usually have several lying around with different notes from different book reviews that I'm working on, or it's all jumbled and, and, you know, um, shopping lists all jumbled up. But 
no, this was a, this was a, I think I may have gotten this one from what's that? What's the name of that? Oh, I used to go to the airport when I, cause I was going back and forth from New York so much. And I'd always stop at the, a check blue at that wonderful Muji. Oh, oh yeah. This Muji, yeah. Notebook. Yeah. It was a Muji notebook, but that Muji store is not there anymore. Of course, I don't, my mother died and I don't go to New York very much anymore. So I'm going to have to, I don't know, find a new source. Oh, well, look into Moleskines. They have, they yeah, have right. I hear they're good. I just, I just I, read yeah. that they're very good. Yeah. yeah, they're very good. And I know they are the choice of the young people. So they um, are, they're very, very hip. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen Shine. I always enjoy these. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank this you. was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. That was Kathleen Shine. The book is Kunstler's in Paradise. It's out and available now. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. Two R's in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're up there, feel free to leave us a review. Those help us out immeasurably and help other people find the show. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. He's got all of his music up on Spotify. Check him out there. That's all the time we have for this week. We will be right back here with you next week. So until next time, thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.